0: Welcome to the Book Week Scotland Conversations podcast. Four conversations from Book Week Scotland on the themes of reading, childhood, language and home. A conversation about language. Welcome from me, Tom Pau, here to introduce you To the Book Week Scotland Conversations podcast, Robert Crawford once commented that in Scotland we live between languages. This conversation between award-winning novelist, poet and Scots activist James Robertson and Gaelic poet, essayist and editor Patrick Mackay is a lively and enlightening exploration of that idea.
1: I don't know how it was for you, but looking back at the, the childhood books that I read, it was strange how many of them you could just have been reading anywhere in the United Kingdom at the same time. Anywhere, say in the Western world, you've got Biggles was in there, you've got Enid Blyton in there, you've got all of the the, the comics, um, Commando, um, Roy of the Rovers, and in some ways, growing up in the, the, the Isle of Lewis, you've got there wasn't that much local specific. It was this annulling of, of, of a reading material? Uh, my brother reminded me of this and I couldn't remember them, the SRA library, which Mm, were little cards that you had in primary school with a text on one side and questions on the other. And this was used in a behavioural kind of way so that if you'd done well in school that day, you'd be sent to the corner to read these stories. And it's almost as if stories were your reward Mm. for being a good pupil, that you had this world open to you because you you had done well enough. But it was never a story, say, from the Earl of Lewis. They, They were put together in Chicago
2: I mean I was born what 15 years after the end of the Second World War so everything was about the war you know all the the, the, the comics the, the commando magazines you've mentioned everything on the television it was all about the war and you know um the various adventures around that so so that was a big deal but I was also I was I was absolutely engrossed with the the Wild West and you know that was another thing it's completely dropped out of the culture but at that at that point everything was about um, the Wild West and cowboys, Indians, you name it, you know, all those, uh, all those things that were on the television. And, and I mean, I just left Red Westerns when I was a kid. That was my kind of escapism. So, but I never thought of it as escapism. It was just where you went when you read a book. Um, so there was no sense that I was, I didn't get a sense that I was being deprived of something because I wasn't reading about stuff that was going on round about me. Uh, I, as far as I was concerned, when you opened the book, you went somewhere else.
1: And I think one of the wonderful things about that is you went somewhere else where there were different words, different language. Um, I remember not just coming across the commandos and the biggles, but at some point reading the novels of Sven (laughs) Hassel, And then discovering that there would be all of these wonderful German and Russian swears not translated. So you'd have this access to another language that was utterly through um, things that were taboo.
2: My, my 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 German is still limited to the words I picked up from the commando magazines, you know, it's... it's <laughs> Handehoch, Achtung, Donner und Blitzen, you name it. That's about all my German is is still from 40, 50 years ago, 50 years ago. <laughs>
1: um, I think one of the difficulties I have is, when looking back at childhood reading and things, is... Accessing it partly because there were um, language barriers, and so I grew up with two languages, and partly because it, it just seems a different world now, um, and it's one of these kind of worlds that is deep inside me, but but I don't, as an adult, have full access to. There's almost this um, separate linguistic horde in there that I've got a memory of, but don't, but can't find on the tip of my tongue, and I've got a poem about that in Thinne narrative of the call hermine schleventanne frankuren machten skrev scottish pepper könel kein akammer i noch acht gotter so war asklich gen anamernes <laughs> gniew von lange immer machas man frattenalien i the fall of mahana a snaph geschieri gedacht ich kein nach hauen han tner mürke sach ich one of the great things about writing in a minority language is that People translate things for you. So this was translated for me by Kieran Carson, the, the Belfast Post. And these, means, these are his words, which I can feel confident they're good words. The tin. When I was in primary school, I got this thin-walled tin where I'd stashed my words, writ on splinters of paper. What I remember is not the design, but how difficult it was to open without names and deeds leaping out like salmon from a net. The dumb babble of my languages, swimming forever towards their lost ground. The tin in my head, rusting, never to be opened, without breaking its crust of salt.
2: Ah, that's really excellent. Uh, I, you, you grew up with two languages going on all the time. In your household, uh, you know, and then also inside your head. I didn't grow up in that situation at all. I was actually born in the south of England and didn't move to Scotland until I was six years old. And my household was entirely English-speaking. But for me, the other stuff was going on outside the house. So as soon as I stepped outside where my family was, I had this other language going on all around about me. And that intrigued me, but I had no idea what it was. I didn't really understand the differences because the same folk that were speaking in what I now know was Scots, uh, could also speak to me, and you know they would modulate their language so that I could understand what they were saying. And then I, over time, I learned also that it was sometimes useful to to, to tone down the English so that so I didn't get beaten up in the playground or whatever. So, the, so there was a, there was a sort of mixture of things going on there for me, but it was a very different kind of experience. Uh, from, I think, from what you're describing.
1: I, how did you feel about that? How did you feel about coming into this world where there was a different language that you had to try and negotiate or work out?
2: I I think I sussed fairly early that that in some respects that made me something of an outsider. But I already think I had it's really weird I was the youngest of three children and I think when you, you're the youngest you also already occupy that place in a way because you've, you're observing what other what's going on and sometimes you're, you're going I'm not going to do that because, because that ends up you know in a bad place so I'm going to learn how to go round, round and avoid getting into that kind of trouble or you, you know you, 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 I think as a third child or a, a youngest child you're often quite observant of what's going on so I think I was very conscious very quickly when we arrived when I was six Years old, and 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 going into Stirling, which was our nearest town, and and uh, and just kind of listening and and seeing that I needed to to work out how to how to sort of uh, negotiate that linguistic gap, because it was you know again 50, 55 years ago, it was a very very distinctive gap. If you were fundamentally an English speaker, um, you were surrounded by folk who really spoke another language, and that was that was both. A little wee bit, a wee bit intimidating, but also quite intriguing for me. Yeah.
1: But as, as a third child, you're going to have to be negotiating things anyway. You're going to have to be canny on how to work out the different relationships. I think Aye, it's absolutely. interesting if you're a younger child than I am as well. Um, the Gaelic short story writer, Ian John Murray and Moragh, has a similar experience because he came to Lewis when um, he, he didn't have English to begin with and the classroom was Gaelic. And he went back from school one day and said to his parents, who were Gaelic speakers, but didn't speak to him, I learned this rhyme in the playground today. Dr. Foster went to Gloucester. What did he see there? He fell in a puddle right up to his clipan. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. And clipan is a Gaelic word that you wouldn't use politely at home. <laughs> and so his, his parents had to just, just stop bursting out laughing. But this was the moment for him when he realised, OK, this is uh, the tricks are going to be played on me here as well. It's not just that there are different languages here, but knowing them is going to be important. Yes. And knowing how to negotiate between the two of them is how I'm going to survive in this playground. Um, for me, both the language of home and school with the strange mix of Gaelic and English. And there's um, various issues there. My parents divorced when I was quite young, so I tended to speak English with my mother, Gaelic with my father, though it wasn't that clear cut. And then you'd go to the school and the language would be almost entirely Gaelic, apart from some orders or some instructions or some cajoling in, in Gaelic. I remember going up to the other room, and it was a two-room primary school, and you walked in on a, on, on a, on a message. And the headmaster going, Ah, shunu, I will Gaelic akath. No, no, ha'nyil gaelic a Do you have any gaelic? No, no, I've got not a word of gaelic at all. (laughs) Just just out of the panic, somebody's talking to me in gaelic and they're a figure of authority. I'm just going to deny
2: everything. Again, uh, I mean, I suspect that you're young enough. I mean, there there would have been a time not that long, maybe in the previous generation, when that would not have been the experience at all, of going into a school and having gaelic used at all within the the confines of the school. Is that right, or am am I... getting my chronology wrong here. Well, I was
1: born in 1979, and so if you're looking at the previous decades, tonight, yes, um, it would depend on the teachers. And so I was in an English-only school. It just so happened that all of the teachers spoke Gaelic as well, and they were relaxed enough to speak it to you too. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, again, thinking about, the, about how language is allowed or not allowed within the confines of the classroom, you know, it's certainly the case that until very, very recently, uh, children were not really supposed to bring Scots words or phrases into 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 the classroom at all, and in fact, you know, a generation ago, um, you would have been physically assaulted by the teacher for doing that. Very often, although there were always teachers who didn't buy into that. Um, but uh, um, but they were kind of running against the norm and, and there was a whole rea- a whole r- range of reasons why I think um, Scots was not allowed into the education system uh, by and large, except of course on certain days like in the run up to Burns Night and so on, when you were encouraged to to, to learn and recite poetry um, and songs. But um, but the reason was that it was believed that you would be held back if you didn't learn how to speak properly, if you didn't know how to speak. I put that word properly in inverted commas, of course, now, but if you didn't know how to speak English properly, then you wouldn't be able to get on in life. And parents bought into that as well, and quite understandably, because they wanted their children to succeed in life. And if they were constantly told by all the authorities, who obviously knew best, that Uh, speaking Scots was not actually a good idea if you want to progress in life, then uh, it's not surprising that that it was basically excluded from your educational experience.
1: And it was exactly the same situation in in the Gaelic-speaking parts of the country. So quite often it was the parents making the decision that um, we will not pass this language on, it will hold them back financially, economically, culturally, they will have a better life if we don't. And, of course, all the research we have now shows that this this is wrong, that if you have two languages from an early age, you are better at everything, but you can fully understand it. It was a world where English was the lingua franca. It was crucial.
2: Uh, for me, there wasn't a conflict at all around about language in school or at home because, like as I said before, my household was an English-speaking household. My mum my, my and dad and my siblings and I were all, um, you know, effectively we were English speakers and and when we all arrived in in Scotland when i was 6 and they were all older than me we we were all we all had english accents as well so there was no no conflict there between uh, as far as i was concerned between the school experience and the home experience but i was conscious that there were other um children in in the school for, who, for whom that was a conflict now again I, my my schooling experience, is very different from the vast majority because I was pri- privately educated. So I was I was sent to a wee, a tiny wee prep school, as they're called in Stirling, which is actually a great. It was a great wee school, but it only had hundred boys in it, and the vast majority of us were middle class boys, obviously for obvious reasons, and so we all spoke English or Scots English, uh, uh, English with Scottish accents and so on. But there were one or two exceptions. There were a couple of lads that had come from perhaps uh, less privileged backgrounds or less well-off backgrounds who spoke differently from the rest of us. And they had a hard time because, again, it was it was really sort of enforced that, that their way of speaking was not going to allow them to progress in life. And, of course, one of the reasons their parents had sent them to this particular school was in order to make sure that they stopped speaking like that. I mean, it, 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 or, or to encourage them to not speak the way they did. But I, I, it was kind of weird. I can remember at a very early age, you know, eight, nine years old, actually feeling a huge amount of sympathy for these two or three kids that I can remember and, and being friendly with them and liking them and getting on with them. But I was kind of aware that there was something weird going on there that didn't really seem to be quite right. But I, I was too young to put my finger on what was going on there.
1: Can I say that, You don't speak now in that kind of clipped, taught English way. You've got this wonderful, and I would say a Scots burr to your accent, and many of the words are Scots language rather than Scots just in the way we're talking just now. What changed?
2: Um, What changed? I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I think I'm a bit of a chameleon, and I think depending upon where I am, I speak differently. Uh, I remember I had a year in America at one time when I was about in my um, early twenties, and and I rapidly realised that I was beginning to sound like an American, which was quite scary actually. <laughs> but uh, but I think but for me it was also it was a it was partly a survival technique because as soon as I got out of school, I realised that that actually you know toning down the the Englishness of the way I spoke was not a bad idea, just because um, it it probably. Deflected some of the flack that I might otherwise get, because I was I was working in environments where, you know, um, everybody basically was was Scottish and spoke with strong accents and spoke a lot of Scots as well, and also then it just kind of opened the door. I was just thinking, well, if if they can do it, why can't I do it? So it, ju- it just seemed to me that I slipped into speaking in a different way, and then it was tied in with a whole lot of other things, like for example, discovering. what the language was through, actually through literature. I'd been hearing this language all round about me, but what really triggered my real interest in Scots was um, that I began to read the poetry of Hugh McDermott. I was was a student in America. He had just died, and I realised that I needed to find out more about this man because there were obituaries about him and he was clearly important. McDermott Um, in the 1920s and 30s had spearheaded the the so-called Scottish literary renaissance and that was focused very much in the early years around him producing high art poetry in the Scots language. I'd been used to listening to people speaking Scots in the post office queue and on the bus and in the street and so on. And suddenly here was somebody from then 50, 60, 70 years ago who had turned that language into the highest of high art poetry. It was difficult and it was challenging poetry, but it was absolutely beautiful. And for me, that was the connection. The first time I'd made a connection between spoken everyday Scots and the fact that it could be used for high art. Well, and with somebody like
1: McDermott, that it's not entirely innocent. It's all strategic. It's all politically motivated as well. It's all this um, attempt to show that you can use Scots in this way, that Scots can talk about absolutely anything in the world that can be cutting-edge German psychology and philosophy. Is this something that you try to do as well, uh, to to, to show there are no bounds to the language?
2: Well, yes and no, because I think there are bounds to the language. And and I think one of the the interesting things about McDermott's McDermott's, uh, experimentation with it was that, in fact, he discovered that there are some limitations to it. But that's not necessarily... I don't think that's a particularly big issue for Scots because that's true of lots of languages. Um, I don't don't think anybody should get too hung up about that. But one of the things... I remember reading McDermott in an interview towards the end of his life. Somebody asked him about this and he said... When he, when he started writing, when he wrote his first Scots lyrics, he, fe- he felt that it unlocked something that he had had locked up since his childhood. You remember, McDermott started writing English in, in, in English uh, before he turned to Scots. And I come across this so often, I and mean, Ron, Ron Butlin is another person, I remember him saying that he, st- he suddenly he turned to Scots and it unlocked something that had been locked up. Now, that's not quite the experience I had because in, in their um, experience. It was it was locking up something that had been suppressed through education, or because they didn't think that there was a usefulness in in writing in Scots. And uh, for me, it was almost like the reverse. That um, the door that opened was not a door that had been shut on me before, or shut on that language um, in the past. It was just a door that opened, and there, what there it was, and I just walked through it.
1: For me, it's not quite that there are different doors that are open but there are different paths and different ways that you can walk through the world and you'll see different things as you go partly because I'm a Gaelic native speaker but I'm also a Gaelic learner because I'm educated to PhD level in English and English literature I'm educated to the age of 14 in Gaelic and so at various points in my life I've had to go back and actively try and recover the language and try and expand it and try and expand my own vocabulary and all of these ways to fill out that way of looking at the world um, and so it could be very easy just to switch back to this garlic path, and you find it's overgrown, or it's potholed, or or it just doesn't lead anywhere. So you have to rebuild that path as you go. Um, and so there's this weird sense, not that it's all there waiting for you and it's unlocked, but you actively have to construct that that way of looking at the world.
2: But but. All language, whether it's your first language or your fifth language, is learned, isn't it? We are all learners at language, whichever language we're operating in, uh, it seems to me. You know, uh, nobody, nobody nobody at four years old, um, unless they're a genius, is able to read Shakespeare and understand Shakespeare. So all language is learned. And you're right, you know, at various points we we, we stop learning uh, a language you know maybe you know you said you you were educated in Gallic up to the age of fourteen, so there 's a huge gap there when you come back to it um that seems to me just a natural kind of it's, 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 it's what it 's what languages do and it 's what how people get through languages and we we're, we're talking quite sort of um thoughtfully about all of this but the vast majority of people many of whom in the world have one, two, three, five, seven languages they don't really consider it in this they don't sit and sort of philosophise over it they just go on with it
1: and and I think this is one of the main things having a couple of languages from an early age it makes language learning an awful lot easier but it also gives you the freedom to to make mistakes and Mm. so I can get by in Spanish I've got some Irish I can speak some Danish Um, I can do a little bit of French but it's largely that I know I'm going to exist slightly differently in the world in each of those languages, and that's fine. But when you've got this sense that one of these languages is the deep inherent core of your being, or other people expect it to be, then you've got this different relationship to to loss.
0: Tom Powell here again, only for a minute, to remind you that Scottish Book Trust believes books, reading and writing have the power to change lives. A love of reading inspires creativity, improves employment opportunities, mental health and well-being and is one of the most effective ways to help break the poverty cycle. If you believe books have the power to change lives, why not become a regular giver to Scottish Book Trust at scottishbooktrust.com slash donate. Now, back to the Book Week Scotland conversation featuring James Robertson and Patrick Mackay on the theme of conversation and language.
2: I freeze whenever I get the opportunity to speak in another language. I'm not very good at that at all. Um, but, um, But I'm very familiar with French on the page. So one of the things that I've done is I've done quite a lot of translation from French into Scots. And, and it's interesting how historically French has been a really good language for lots of poets and playwrights to, to translate into Scots from. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but maybe it's the same sort of reasons. Maybe they're all folk that, that had French ad nauseum in schools. Anyway, this is a, this is a, a, a translation of a, a Baudelaire poem. So this one is called Smyr and it's about the changing of the seasons, but it's also about Baudelaire being very down and do in the his usual kind of way. Back end the autumn, winter, glor saple, spring I love ye, dwam inducin seasons. I love who ye hang a shrewd o' smear about my heart and harns, like, you know, the clout-hapit kirk-yard urns. Here in the how for the snell wind skites and skates through the lang necht, scouring the lums and satellite plates. My corby black sowl spreads its wings wi an ease at just Disney hay on warm summer days. Bleak seasons, queens of their cold northern erts, Nathan is sweeter tae cold mornin herts that I in the hard neave o' winter hae been than the unblinking glower a year dark in, unless it's to in bed, feared, yin, we another, on a necht a thutten min, a lane, we were sorrows together. So for me, I, I, I made a choice. That I, I, when I came across Bodley's poetry, I saw, I, I I, I, which was quite late, I mean, I was in my th- 30s, oh, 40s, I think, before I started reading Baudelaire, and I thought, "Oh, this guy's good." <laughs> but uh, but I, I almost immediately, I think, when I read a, um, poetry, uh, either in in translation from from the original language into English, or if I read it in the original language, I my almost the first thing that happens to me is I think, "I wonder how that would go in Scots," and I don't know why, but that's almost it a, a, a triggers something, and I'm always interested, and so I started to play about with the Baudelaire, and I just thought. I, these these do go they work well they, they they move from that language of French into Scots so for me quite often one of the things that prompts whether I'm going to write in English or in Scots is if I'm certainly if I'm working in translation I can I can't really imagine why I would bother to to translate something from another language into English but I'm always intrigued to see if I can get something into Scots I, you know, from, from the age I could physically write, I knew I was going to be a writer, or that was my intention. But at that time, I, I was going to write Westerns. and <laughs> did write some Westerns when I was a teenager, but, but of course, you know, then you, time moves on, you grow up. And it was really the sort of revolution that was kicked off in my head by McDermott that made me realise that, no, I wasn't going to write Westerns, I was going to write about the place that I was living in, that I, that, that I felt I belonged to and that belonged to me. And to do that required me at least at some level, to to use Scots. And also it then became an emotional thing. It became a thing that uh, unlo- I had, something had been unlocked in, in me that gave me access to this language. It was almost like uh, I had been trained to be uh, uh, an electrician or a plumber. And suddenly somebody came along and said, yeah, great, you're qualified, but here's another bunch of tools that you didn't, we didn't give you before. And it was like, it was astonishing. You know, suddenly there was this whole other range of things that I could do. And that, to me, has that stayed with me for the rest of my life. And for me, it seems like a positive, a, a, a real positive and a bonus that I have that other set of tools that I can use. And that sometimes I mix the tools up. You know, it's not like a, they're, they're, they're all in the one box now, as it were. But you reach for something and you suddenly go, I'm going to use that spanner, no that one, for this particular exercise.
1: I think that's a really good way of looking at it because... The languages coexist, they intermingle, and why you would keep this pristine wall between them makes no sense to me. Um, And so when I write poetry in Gaelic, there's quite often lots of English words in there, I put Gaelic words into the English, because I'm a native speaker of both. Um, When I started writing, it was in English because this is what you read largely. It was sci-fi rather than Westerns that I started writing. Um, And it was almost an adult decision to say, "Okay, I'm in Dublin and I'm going to start writing in Gaelic. Um, Partly because I was reading a bit too much Joyce at the time. Uh So the idea of your tools are silence, cunning and exile. And so using the exile when you can, but also using the silence when you can and being silent in English is one of the, the, the tools of that. And this means now, when I translate my own work, I'm a deeply dishonest translator. Um, And so I play absolutely between the languages and let them do their own things. And so I I think that the two worlds can exist parallel to each other, but not having to intermingle it. And so I've got this poem, which in Gaelic is Kumishke, but in um, English is The Alchemist's Workshop. And it's one of these nostalgic poems about childhood. And in the Gaelic, it talks about the Panini album with the stickers of Mexico in 1986 with Bruchaga, Socrates and Schumacher in it. But in the English, they change. And it's Ruggieri, Zico and Rummenigge. And I don't know what makes three of them more Gallic footballers and three of them more English footballers, but they just are. Um, and I see no problem with that, partly because I'm writing for myself and I'm bilingual. And I, it's this world where the different languages coexist.
2: Well... The, as you said, it would be completely assuming that one the one accepts the, the the reality of the world we live in. Then that is the way that languages operate, and and Gaelic and English, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're 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 dealing with them at the same time all the time. Um, Scots and English obviously have a have a much closer linguistic relationship than, than than Gaelic and English, and and so it's it's completely it seems to be completely. Normal and understandable that uh, that uh, that one would use Scots words and English words sometimes in the same sentence. It's not an it's not an issue. And in fact, then that begs the questions about how you actually define you know television. Take the word television, that's not an English word. That's a Greek and Latin word, and of course, it's used all over the world in different languages. That's that, to me, that's a Scots word as well. You know, it, it's not an issue. Um, but some people, I mean, you know, you get sometimes folk who. They, they developed a, a sort of lang, a, a, a word list um, about. Oh, we must have neologisms for everything, and they came out with something really stupid for television. They, um I think they called it the Gauk's Kissed, which is not, you know, the the Fool's Box, which is not actually a translation at all. That's just that's a that's a that's an opinion. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you think you can get away with more in Scots? Partly, I ask because I've been on Radio Three and been allowed to to allow allowed to use the C word in a poem, which normally has to go up all of the levels of um, permission in the BBC because it was in a Scots poem. And l- reading The Fanatic again, and it's got this great uh, 17th century vocabulary which isn't in the dictionary of Scots language quite a lot of it. Words like yowdswiver, mutton driver, douglauper. And if you're going to be using, using these in English, then they're all like... Lot...
2: <laughs> yeah, I yeah, Yod Swiver. I did f I did come across that particular phrase. Or or maybe what I think I came across was some some reference to somebody swaving a yod, which is like, you know, mountain a mare and uh, and then I I just basically Turned it around and turned it into a, a noun, and 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 Doug Lauper, I think, was you know I mean it's it's the self-explanatory really. But you're right. In a sense, I can get a, you can get away with things like that. That probably, if if they would say turned that into an abridgment on radio, I could probably got away with those in Scots on on Radio Four Book at Bedtime. Whereas um, if they'd, those words, if they'd been in the English equivalents, they might have actually said, you know what, that's a bit fierce. Uh, Aye. <laughs> Do you think about Gaelic in head and heart terms? Do you have a sort of thing that's saying, well, this is the one that really stirs me? Does Gaelic stir you in a way that English doesn't? Or
1: I think the head and heart argument always reminds me of the end of the film Metropolis, um, where you've got the heart as the mediator between the head and the hand in this um, idealised futurist vision of the future. I'm deeply suspicious of it. Both of them are languages of the head and the heart and the gut and the foot and all of my experience in the world, and they always have been. But I think that for me, coming into adulthood, all of my education and the choices up to that point had got me to this level of fluency and skill and nuance in English, and I'd felt that I was losing that. In Gaelic, in terms of how you would cope with um, everything that you have to do in the English in the Gaelic language, um, being able to talk about philosophy, being able to talk about politics, being able to be as accurate and precise on things as you wanted to. There's, to some extent, English was then and still is the highest register of Gaelic. So there's a point where, if you're going into legal vocabulary, you you f- fall into Gaelic. But it was very important to me... Fall into Gaelic. Sorry, fall into to English. English. Yes. Um, it's very important to me for familial reasons, personal reasons and cultural reasons to be able to do everything I want in both languages. Um, my father was a big Gaelic language activist and I came, came through schooling when there were all of these campaigns for Gaelic broadcasting, Gaelic education, a Gaelic university. So this political activism was part and parcel of everything I s- saw growing up. I kind of go along with the Adorno line that everything is political or the, everything that is said in a minority language is inherently political. And so the act of translating into Gaelic, the act of publishing in Gaelic, all of these are political in and of themselves. I've got slight issues with that. I'd quite like to be able to not be political at some points, to have this rarefied space of free aesthetic um, writing. But I don't think we've got that.
2: I find that totally fascinating because I agree with you, I think. For writers who choose to write in Scots, that is a political decision or a political act at some level. And like you, I kind of wish it wasn't, I wish that actually you could just, people could go into bookshops and just pick... Scott, Scott's novels um scots books of journalism off the off the shelf and just pick them up and take them away and read them as if they were reading an english book but we're a long way for that for all the reasons that we've talked about about particularly about uh, the, the power structures of language in this country um but i also really really agree with you about this thing i think it's a false dichotomy to say that you know language is you know divided between Heed on the one hand and hurt on the other. I just think it's a, a totally false way of looking at language. The idea that um, Robert Burns is only writing emotional, lang- emotional poetry and not actually sophisticated intellectual poetry is just bollocks. It really is, and uh, and that's true of you know so many other writers I can think of. But I think also going back to this thing about. W- if you, uh, we, sh- we, sh- you strive obviously to to try to get the most out of garlic as you possibly can, and for me, having, un having had the door to Scots unlocked as a as a young person, it seems to me that that the that Scots is underutilized by. In the very country where it where it exists, you know, and and, and and that has nurtured it, which is one of the reasons why I've been so active in trying to get Scots used in schools, because one of the weird things about going to school in, in Scotland until very recently was that you, you might grow up in a household where, you know, you lived in a house, it was your home, uh, you lived in a toon. Uh, you, 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 you weren't allowed to do this, or you didn't do this, or whatever. And as soon as you go to school, you learn that you live in a house; it's your home. You live in a town, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it seems to me that that is again, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a false way of trying to educate people. You're almost saying all of the words and the language and the syntax that you use outside of this classroom is somehow inferior. Um, and one of the reasons for setting up Etchiquo, the, the Scots language um, publication. Um, imprint um, which is now quite 17 years old and I think we've published 60 or 70 books was precisely to try and break down that, that hierarchy and say you know what this is also legitimate and in fact Bairns should grow up able to not just speak it but they should also be able to recognise it on the page and not think, look, not look at a page of Scots and think that's a foreign language because isn't it isn't, it's their language, but they just, they've, never, they've not been given the tools to actually read it.
1: I'm really interested in the way that you went from house hame to being allowed. And so it's questions of permission immediately um, and breaking the boundaries of what Scots language is permitted or allowed to do. Do you think that the fact that you came to Scots gave you more permissions and freedoms, or is it just that you're a bit callous?
2: Uh, Again, in a weird kind of way, I think the fact that I came in as an outsider made that easier for me. One of the things I've really noticed with teachers, not always, but often, is that English teachers from England who have come to work in Scotland in primary schools are often, not always, but often much more open to using Scots in the classroom than some of their Scottish counterparts. But that's because the Scottish teachers have been through exactly the same system as the Bairns that they're now teaching. They also have all of these hang-ups about, is that going to hold me back? Is that, you know, I really need to teach the the, the children uh, to to speak properly because otherwise they're going to end up, um, you know, not getting good jobs and all that sort of thing. But folk coming from elsewhere, not just from England, but other places who are teaching they're much more open to the idea of, of, a sort of uh, li- encouraging a kind of linguistic diversity but also encouraging children to use the language that they bring to school and not say, sorry, that one you have to leave outside the classroom. So we're all trapped in a sort of, there are historical reasons, as we you know write what we said at, this, at the beginning of the conversation, there were good reasons why parents said, um, I'm not going to um, encourage my child to use Gaelic or Scots because it's going to hold them back. Those reasons, I think, are gone and should be gone, um, but we still have to get over the kind of historical legacy of that. Here we are; it's it's twenty nineteen. It's the uh, uh, UNESCO year of indigenous languages. A lot of languages in the world are in a lot worse condition than Gaelic or Scots. You know, some of them are down to a few thousand, even a few hundred speakers. So, we, on the one hand, we can say that we're you know we're in better a better state in other parts of the world where they're losing languages, like you know, it's the, the biodiversity of languages is being, being wiped out really, really rapidly, echoing Ian Creighton Smith's wonderful poem, Shall Gaelic Die? I think the idea
1: of biodiversity is crucial because, yes, Gaelic will die, Scots will die, English will die, if you take a, a long enough time frame. Um, There's a lot to be positive about with both Scots and Gaelic. There's a lot, if you want to be, to be negative about in terms of the number of speakers, in terms of how the language is used. But I think the crucial thing is that both languages will die more quickly if we treat them with too much respect, if we treat them as this historical artifact that can't change. And so trying to preserve things in Aspic is the worst possible thing.
2: I couldn't agree more. Sticking them in a the museum behind a glass case and saying, that is Gaelic, that is Scots, and we can't take it out and touch it because if we do, it'll fall to bits. That's that's a disastrous way to cheat any language.
1: And so I think what we should all be involved in playfully is renovating and um, refreshing the languages on an ongoing daily basis. Invent words, make puns, um, construct new ideas.
2: To, to take an obvious example, the word that has been you know floating about in the last few weeks or even months is clustered burgh <laughs> I mean, it's all right. It's actually, and what that is, of course, is a mixture of English and Scots. But I mean, you know, it does actually sum up the whole thing pretty nicely. I think so. There's a word that I suspect is going to be around for a long time. Partly because it's entertaining. It captures a new way of looking at the world. It
1: creates something and it makes you think. Ah, okay, this is a particularly Scottish word.
2: And I think, and I think again, this is maybe where Scots has a wee bit of an advantage over Gaelic. Sometimes is that because of its very close sibling relationship with English, it has that ability to be a bit subversive and to undermine English. So you can you, you can throw a Scots word into a, an English sentence and completely change the tone and and make it funny, or a bit sinister, or a bit dark, or a bit threatening. Um, in a way, perhaps that it's more difficult for Gaelic to do because because. Most people don't have the ability to understand what is being said in the Gaelic. Och, we've always used Scots to infect English.
1: Don't worry. <laughs> I've got a poem called In Thopar about how you don't find this well of purity of language in your village. You have to construct it yourself. You have to make those wells anew. <laughs> is a acam riachrwachach on fronus scotch is nice is spachro chlachan. Jamarst chlachan mi lego agus briachan, shili is corderoi, lag an illus dhalin Toledo panty, phachlan atychol, itlan garrafaul. Chanea a diolofsgaan achim is a newaran, in rásan na Tunj smūr. Sgilach tainch na floi a hacam gach trup a hamig
0: I wonder how many of you at some point in your lives have felt the need like James and Patrick to negotiate between languages to change the way you speak in different situations In Sunset Song named as Scotland's favourite novel Chris Guthrie saw herself as Scots Chris at home and English Chris at school Moreover do you see language as a a door to walk through or as a set of tools that widens your possibilities of expression and how might we all use language playfully and inventively to keep it flexible and relevant i ask the question because as the conversation between james and patrick makes clear we are all learners of language patrick read a poem translated by Kieran Carson who died very shortly after the recording patrick and james would like to dedicate this conversation on language to his memory to paraphrase patrick we could all be confident that kieran carson used good words thank you for listening
1: listening to A Conversation About Language, part of A Year of Conversation, featuring James Robertson and Padraig Mackay. The show was directed by Tom Pau and produced by Ewan Spence. A Conversation About Language is a Spence Media production, commissioned for Book Week Scotland by Scottish Book Trust. Oh, do you want the English as well then? Okay. The Well, I return each day to the well on the edge of the village, but it's not really there, and I have to rebuild it from the scraps of driftwood and gneiss, the rubble of life scattered around. Tuesday, it is a mix of Lego and Lies, Jam and corduroy. Another time, Toledo Steel, Pottery Skelfs, the names of tools, Auk Feathers. No reflection flickers in the fetid darks, the moor-stained currents of the land but a story that tells me squint
0: each time I start to repeat it.